0: Hi, guys. Welcome back to season three of the Unknown Friends podcast. I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and I'm delighted that you've joined me today. This week, you're listening to our 15th book review episode of the year, and it's our last episode of three devoted to J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. So over the past two episodes, we discussed Tolkien's life and career, Um, his process of writing The Lord of the Rings, and more specifically, some themes he develops in the first two books of the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers. Today, we are completing our discussion of Tolkien's work by taking a closer look at The Return of the King, the final installment of The Lord of the Rings, and we'll be considering some of the deep, overarching themes of the trilogy as a whole that come to fruition here in Book 3. So without further preliminaries, let's get going. So Book 2, The Two Towers, um, of course brought our heroes some high moments as well as some of their darkest trials, and it ended on a cliffhanger, with Sam and Frodo on the brink of the land of Mordor and in very dire straits. Frodo was captured by orcs, and Sam escaped with the Ring of Power, but he feels that it's his first duty not to try to destroy the Ring by himself, but instead to pursue the orcs and rescue Frodo, if at all possible. So I won't go into the details, but Sam and Frodo do get reunited and do resume their trek towards Mount Doom, but with very little hope of reaching it undetected by the Dark Lord Sauron and his servants. But hope has been so faint for them for so long, and the dangers around them loom so close that they practically have no other option. Uh, I mean, it's literally either keep going or sit down and die. They are out of water, nearly out of food, and the only tiny hope they're clinging to is that maybe, just maybe, they can survive the last couple of days they will take to reach Mount Doom, just long enough to arrive and throw the ring into the fire and complete their quest. At this point, being able then to turn around and get back home is really out of the question. Meanwhile, their friends are mustering against the armed forces of Mordor that Sauron has sent out against Minas Tirith, uh, the chief citadel of the men of Gondor. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli have taken a dangerous path toward Minas Tirith in the hopes of finding reinforcements, while the hobbit Merry has traveled with the army of the men of Rohan, who are journeying as swiftly as they can, hoping to reach Minas Tirith in time to participate in the battle they know is about to take place. And Gandalf and the fourth hobbit Pippin went on ahead to Minas Tirith a few days prior, and Pippin has actually taken service under the Lord Denethor, who is the steward of Gondor in the absence of a king. There has been no king of Gondor for centuries, but prophecies say that one day a descendant from the ancient line of kings will arrive and reclaim the throne. So except Frodo and Sam, who are in Mordor, And except Baromir, who died in battle in Book 1, all the other members of the original Fellowship of the Ring are converging on Minas Tirith, joining the forces of men to fight Sauron's armies. And we watch this develop over the first few chapters of The Return of the King, and eventually we witness the siege of Minas Tirith and the ensuing battle. Our heroes fight valiantly, even in the midst of fear. Though many are wounded, and ultimately Sauron's forces are driven back. But this is, in some sense, kind of a hollow victory, or at least our heroes know that it will all be for nothing if the Ring of Power does not get destroyed. If Sauron discovers Frodo and Sam moving through his stronghold of Mordor, he will seize the ring and its power will enable him to crush his enemies absolutely. So the fate of Middle-earth hinges on the choices of Frodo and Sam and what happens to them. So, as I'm sure you probably already know, our heroes keep striving to the bitter end, even when it's absurd to hold on to hope. And ultimately, the ring is destroyed, though in a most unexpected and yet somehow inevitable way. And Sauron's power collapses and Frodo and Sam are rescued from the very heart of Mordor. The members of the Fellowship of the Ring are reunited in Minas Tirith. Aragorn takes his rightful place as King of Gondor, and the hobbits head home to the Shire. Now, in the last chapters of The Return of the King, there is a development that might seem a bit strange, and If you've watched the Lord of the Rings movies, but never read the books, you'll probably be quite surprised to hear what actually happens. Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin are heading home, and they arrive on the outskirts of the Shire, and they are met by unexpected changes. The hobbits there are living in fear and subjection to a mysterious chief called Sharky, who has brought in a band of ruffians to enforce a lot of unjust rules he's made for the hobbits. The chief and the ruffians have cut down groves of trees and demolished hobbit homes. They've just made a mess of everything, and they've jailed any hobbits who've tried to stand in their way, and even killed at least one. So this is the Shire that our hobbit heroes come home to, so unlike the peaceful, fruitful haven they expected on their return so they have to set it right they have traveled the world they've grown into wise warriors and so they now have a responsibility to their home and their people so merry and pippin who won great renown fighting in the battle for minas tirith they muster the hobbits with sam's help and they wage what goes down in hobbit history as the battle of bywater and they defeat the Ruffians. But they still have to deal with this strange chief called Sharky, who turns out, astonishingly, to be Saruman, once a mighty wizard, but now a pathetic little tyrant who decided to wreak some havoc and misery in the Shire out of simple spite. So Frodo urges the hobbits to actually have mercy on Saruman and not kill him, no matter how much he might deserve it. But in the end, Saruman is killed, though not by any hobbit. His slave, Grima Wormtongue, murders him, and so ends his oppression of the Shire. There is a big mess to clean up afterward, of course, and so the hobbits set right to work, rebuilding, replanting, doing their best to restore the Shire, and even improve on its old ways, though not everything can be restored. Some things must be lost, or changed at least. But they succeed in making the Shire a good and thriving land again. And our heroes sort of live happily ever after, but more on that later. Now, plenty of readers have gotten through this this chapter about Saruman in the Shire. And they've sat back and thought, what in the world? You know, why why is that in there? It's weird and anticlimactic. You know, after this epic War of the Ring, Tolkien tags on this extra little climax at the end where the hobbits have to fight a tiny battle in their hometown to remove Sharky from the Shire. It feels like a weird... Let down after the epic scope of the main conflict. I think perhaps the key, or a key, to understanding this chapter, which Tolkien named The Scouring of the Shire, is to pay attention to Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin's attitude toward the whole thing. They are disgusted and saddened by what Saruman and his henchmen have done. But really not for a moment are they afraid. From the first time they set foot in this altered shire, they deal with the situation with confidence and grace. So I don't think we're to understand this chapter as another climax per se at all. It is a practical and natural and meaningful coda to all the previous adventures. It really makes perfect sense that Saruman, once expelled from the Council of Wizards, would try to be a little tyrant somewhere, and nowhere more likely than the Land of Hobbits, which were people his rival Gandalf always loved and believed in, but Saruman had always underestimated and learned to despise them. So of course, he tries to oppress these people out of his malice. And the invasion of evil into Frodo's homeland while he's away on an epic quest is not only natural, but also, I think, extremely relevant to real life. When Frodo finally sets foot again in his old home Bag End, which is now filthy and disordered and abandoned, he makes the enlightening comment, this is Mordor, just one of its works. And I think this is so insightful. Maybe we can defeat the big enemy out there, but when we turn back homeward, we'll often find that the enemy has worked to get a foothold here too, and we will lose everything that we love if we don't drive the enemy out of our home. But that said, Tolkien is also giving us one more example here of the pitiful self-destructiveness of evil and the glory and strength of good. Saruman has shriveled since we knew him before. And in the end, it's his own slave who kills him. In contrast, Frodo and his three friends have developed amazingly over the course of the story. They have matured from foolish, frightened hobbits into impressive leaders. The seeds of courage and wisdom and compassion that were in them early on have taken root in the soil of their experiences and have emerged and flourished as full-grown virtues. And so there's no need now for fear or hesitation. So these hobbits just get right down to business. They know what to do to drive out these ruffians from their homeland. They have defeated much more grim enemies in the past. So here we get to finally see the hobbits as warriors and sages in their own right. Gandalf can't help them, Aragorn can't help them, but they no longer need that kind of help. So we see the payoff of their journey. We see their growth. And we couldn't witness that very well if they were to come home to the Shire and find it the exact same tranquil place it was when they left. We have to see them fight their own battle and spare their own enemy in order to really understand how far they've come. So I don't think this episode exists to try to squeeze another climax or a little more action into the story. It rather serves to illuminate the transformation in our four hobbits, as well as the simple reality that home is never going to be quite the same when we return as when we left it. All things change, and we have to continually adapt and work hard in order to preserve the good of the past and create the good of the present and the future. Okay, wow, I didn't actually plan to talk about the scouring of the Shire quite at that length, but there it is. What I did intend, do intend to discuss is one of, I think, the most central themes of the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. We see it woven through all three books, and it's not just some lesson that Tolkien decided he should probably teach us. It is deeply integrated in the characters and the storylines themselves is an intrinsic part of the structure and meaning of these books. And might I add, it's deeply biblical, deeply Christian. And the theme that I'm talking about is the surprising unity, if you will, of folly and wisdom. Or perhaps the reality that true wisdom often looks like folly or you could say true strength, often looks like weakness. And vice versa, real folly sometimes appears to be wisdom at first. So this idea pervades the Lord of the Rings. From first to last, it is hobbits who shape the destiny of Middle-earth. Hobbits. Backward, small, hairy people who love food and parties and gardening, and who think of adventures as unrespectable, inconvenient things. The heroes of Middle-earth are ultimately these people, whom every other race thinks of as weak and foolish, and not without cause. There is some genuine foolishness in Hobbits, and genuine weakness. Some of them are thick-headed, most of them are stubborn, And all of them love very simple things like food and pipeweed. But maybe Tolkien wants us to realize there is unlooked-for strength and even wisdom in things we would tend to think of as simple. Simple things tend to be foundational and long-lasting. And the virtues that distinguish hobbits are indeed foundational and long-lasting values like friendship generosity hopefulness and tenacity friendship is the bedrock of the lord of the rings from the very beginning to the final chapter and we discussed that a bit um, last week in our bonus episode on patreon the entire story of the lord of the rings exists because of and for the sake of friendship And then generosity is a surprisingly important virtue of hobbits. Bilbo seems to be the only ring bearer who was ever able to voluntarily give the ring of power to someone else. And that's huge after he had been its owner for decades. If that act of generosity had not taken place, we would not have the story of the Lord of the Rings at all. And then The other two Hobbit virtues I mentioned, hope and tenacity, these two are closely connected. I think tenacity, or um, stubbornness, if you will, is what takes over when there's no hope left, or when hope seems absolutely foolish, since that's kind of the theme we're talking about, folly that actually conceals great wisdom and strength. Across the whole trilogy, hope seems to be the epitome of foolishness. The power of the Dark Lord Sauron, his host of evil allies, and evident weaknesses among the men and elves and others opposing Sauron, all these things make it extremely unlikely that Sauron can be defeated. And then you add to that the plan that the good guys come up with to make a weak hobbit the bearer of the Ring of Power and send him off with just one companion, also a weak hobbit, into the Dark Lord's perilous land to try to destroy the ring. This, if anything, should be a job for a battalion of mighty seasoned warriors, and even then it would be unlikely to succeed. So everything is stacked against this unbelievable plan. It is folly to try it and to hope in it. Denethor, steward of Gondor, calls it a fool's hope. And Gandalf, interestingly, echoes this phrase when Pippin asks him if there's any hope left for Frodo. There never was much hope, Gandalf says, just a fool's hope, as I have been told. But what underlies all this, and what Gandalf knows, is that true wisdom is not measured by the counsels of men and the appearances of the world true wisdom looks like folly because it is based instead on realities that are difficult or even impossible to see. And this actually ties back to another topic we discussed in the Patreon episode, perspective. True wisdom recognizes something beyond its own situation, beyond its own knowledge. True wisdom chooses to believe that Qualities like hope and love and goodness are far bigger and more important than my situation. When all I can see is darkness around me, it seems like the height of foolishness to trust in an unseen structure to the universe, a structure rooted in goodness and beauty. So Gandalf acknowledges that it is a fool's hope to believe a hobbit could save Middle-earth. But he still hopes, because he trusts that good is older and stronger than evil, despite all the appearances to the contrary. There's this fantastic passage in the middle of The Return of the King that puts all this in perspective um, and also incorporates another idea or two that I want to comment on. This is when Frodo and Sam are making the last stage of their desperate journey across the barren land of Mordor, and in exhaustion, they have paused to try to catch a few hours sleep. And Frodo drifts off immediately, but Sam is awake a few minutes longer. And Tolkien writes this. Peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself, Now, for a moment, his own fate, and even his master's, ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. I want us to remember that Tolkien himself went through harrowing experiences in his life, Trench warfare in the Great War, among other things. So this perspective he shares is hard won. It is no naive belief in the power of goodness. Sam here looks up, and that right there is, is crucial. And he glimpses the reality that the shadow, which is so dark and oppressive, is truly only a small and passing thing when you see what's above and beyond it light and high beauty that cannot be touched by the world's darkness. And this realization returns him to hope. I also think it's interesting Tolkien's reference to defiance in this passage, which is kind of what I meant earlier when I talked about tenacity or stubbornness. In the previous chapter before this passage, Sam was looking for Frodo trying to rescue him, and he could not find him after long searching. And so he sat down in something very near despair. But then to his own surprise, he started singing. And this Tolkien describes as not hope per se, but defiance. And this is why I think defiance or stubbornness is a vital virtue of hobbits. In the grip of despair, when they have lost the perspective of hope for the time being. Because I think there are times in everyone's life when hope seems lost. In those times, defiance is what pulls the hobbits through until they're able to reclaim hope. It's this astonishing willpower that hobbits discover in their darkest moments. A stubborn resistance to evil and a commitment to the path they've chosen even though that path seems absolutely hopeless at the moment. That kind of defiance is noble, and it's the only thing that protects our heroes from utter despair and keeps them from giving up. So that is, I think, another kind of so-called folly, another simple foundational virtue that is revealed in Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin in their times of greatest trial. But the passage that I read about the star points us to one more character quality that we see in Hobbits, and in all of the heroes of the Lord of the Rings. And it is in one sense, yet another example of strength that can look like weakness. And this quality is also deeply knitted into the trilogy's central theme of friendship. What I'm talking about is humility, or we could also say self-sacrifice. After Sam glimpses that star and is restored to hope, Tolkien writes, for a moment his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him, and he's able to go to sleep putting away all fear. A sense of our own smallness in comparison to the height and grandeur of goodness might be sound kind of depressing, but it's actually liberating. This humility, this realization that no, my life is not worthless, it's not irrelevant, but nonetheless, I am not the center of the universe. I am not in control. I am not responsible for the fate of the world. This is freeing. To recognize that my time on this earth is incredibly short And there are immense forces at work in the world beyond my comprehension. Some forces of evil, yes, but stronger forces of good. And all that matters is that I am fighting on the side of the good. If I fail in my small battle, if I go down fighting, others will take my place and good will win in the end. So this perspective enables... The heroes of The Lord of the Rings to fight with courage, greater courage even, than if they believed the fate of the world did rest in their hands, which would be paralyzing. Humility enables them to do more, not less, because humility frees them to risk everything, to put their own lives on the line and sacrifice themselves if necessary, because they're fighting for something beyond themselves. This is beautiful. And biblical. It's again the wisdom of foolishness, um, like Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians. And it is the greatest love a person can show that he's willing to lay down his life for his friends. And this actually brings us to the theme with which the Lord of the Rings leaves us in the very final pages of The Return of the King the interconnected themes of loss and restoration. In the very last chapter, the Hobbits have returned to the Shire and driven out their enemies, and they set about healing their homeland and their community. And they do a beautiful job. Some things are lost forever, but other good things get established. So it's a time of change, which is always difficult, but great gains are made, and the Hobbits' friendships are what strengthen them through the transition. But... Unlike his friends, Frodo carries wounds that cannot be fully healed in Middle-earth. And after two years back in the Shire, he has come to understand this reality, and it is granted to him and to Bilbo, who bore the ring before him, to leave Middle-earth forever on a ship bound for the Undying Lands. And they'll travel with Gandalf and Elrond and Galadriel, the great protectors of Middle-earth, who have now fulfilled their tasks, as Frodo has his, and they are no longer needed. But of course, this means Frodo is leaving his dearest friends behind. And for Sam especially, the separation is heartrending. But this is how Frodo explains the need for his departure. He says, I have been too deeply hurt, Sam. I tried to save the Shire, and it has been saved, but not for me. It must often be so, Sam, when things are in danger. Someone has to give them up, lose them, so that others may keep them. Tolkien wants us to understand the truth that some hurts can't be healed in this life, some losses will never be restored in Middle-earth. But Tolkien also wants us to know and to trust that when we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others, healing will come, eventually, in the Undying Lands. Frodo will find full restoration when he reaches that land across the sea and one of my very favorite passages from the whole trilogy comes just a few paragraphs from the end, as Tolkien briefly describes Frodo's voyage. And he writes, At last, on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air, and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that, as in his dream in the house of Bombadil, The gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back, and he beheld white shores, and beyond them, a far green country under a swift sunrise. C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle primarily, and then Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings, are probably the two fiction writers who have most formed my understanding of death. And this passage right here is the one I often return to from Tolkien. For me, uh, and I hope for you as well, this puts death in proper perspective. There's a joy and a glory to it. That said, of course, those left behind for the time being are now the ones who have to deal with loss. And the loss of a friend is one of those things that will never fully heal in Middle-earth. But Tolkien shows us the best way to respond to such loss, which is to share our grief with the friends we still have by our side. As Frodo sails away, Sam watches the ship disappear and listens to the waves murmur long into the evening, and by his side stand Merry and Pippin. And Tolkien writes that when they finally turn away and head home, each had great comfort in his friends on the long gray road. So we're back to friendship once again. It's friendship that propelled the hobbits on their journey from the start. It's friendship that empowered them along the way. And in the end, it's friendship that sustains them through loss. So maybe if there was only one thing we could take away from the Lord of the Rings and apply to our lives, maybe it would be this, to prioritize true, deep friendship above nearly everything else, to find and to be trustworthy friends who will walk through the darkness together, serve each other, sacrifice for each other, celebrate and comfort each other and persevere together all the way to the journey's joyful end. Well, it's been a brief but a joyful journey for me to get to revisit the Lord of the Rings for a few weeks and discuss it here on the podcast. And I hope it's been a meaningful journey for you guys as well. Thank you so much for being my unknown friends, and joining me for these episodes. I would love to hear from you if you have thoughts to share on The Lord of the Rings. Uh, There are so many more facets of meaning in these books than I've had time to mention on the podcast, and I would really enjoy getting your take on the trilogy's themes if you want to message me by email or on social media. In two weeks, we will be transitioning to a new trilogy on the podcast. Our first, and incidentally not last, science fiction trilogy of the season. I am excited to take a look with you guys at Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, starting next time in episode 16, which will be coming out on Wednesday, August 3rd. So I hope you come back for the launch of that discussion. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a quick review of the Unknown Friends podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening, and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and you can learn more about me and my work as a playwright at my website, kittywainproductions.com. Thanks again for listening.